Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Dr. Myron Roll. Myron is a former NFL safety, a Rhodes Scholar, and now a neurosurgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's fighting to make sure that people in the Caribbean community have access to neurologists and neurosurgery. NFL pro Myron Roll went from the football field to the front lines of this pandemic as a doctor. A Rhodes Scholar drafted to the Tennessee Titans in 2010, Myron left football after three years to attend medical school. Good morning, everyone. Dr. Myron Roll, 5.45 a.m., Tuesday morning. Walking into Mass General Hospital. Concussions are serious, and they used to be a nebulous injury. You know, back in the day, you would think that... Uh, if you got your bell rung, it would say you're seeing stars. I just wanted football to sort of take me as far as it could. And once it did, and once I got all of it out of my body, I said, let's move into medicine so that we can still contribute to society and I can still live this lifelong dream of fixing people and helping people. Hi, I'm Dr. Myron Roll, neurosurgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. And I'm fighting for equitable access to neurosurgical care for the most vulnerable people in America and around the world. Sorry, not sorry. Myron, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and for all the incredible work that you're doing. I want to talk to you about the work in the Caribbean community that you do, but there are a few other things that I want to talk to you about first to start. Tell us how you went from the NFL to neurosurgery. Well, first, thanks for having me. This is a really awesome experience and obviously been an admirer of yours for a while and having a chance to speak about these things is cool. It really is. It's nice. And for me, the NFL and football has been a part of my family for a while. My dad started the Caribbean American Football League in Nassau, Bahamas. So he was very much into football growing up. And when we came to the States, he's passed that along to me and my brothers. My cousins played in the NFL, Antro Roll, Samari Roll. So we have a little bit of a lineage. And I always wanted to play professional football. I mean, ever since scoring my first touchdown as a young man, making a tackle, doing some major play on the field, it gave me a sense of adrenaline and a rush and excitement that really was incomparable to anything else that I was doing, especially in sports. So as I continued to matriculate through high school and college, I realized that I was decent. I was beating these players who were my opponents and getting full scholarships, getting high rankings. Went to Florida State University, became an All-American there, got drafted into the NFL, which was phenomenal. But at the same time, running this sort of athletic race, my academic pursuits, my parents always made sure that I had another option to do once football was done because it's a transient sort of thing. It doesn't last for a long time. 
you still need to have a valuable contribution once it's over. So they made me do book reports as a young person, like literally fifth grade on Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Ben Carson. And Carson's story stood out to me as a black pediatric neurosurgeon, somebody who looked like me, somebody who didn't have a lot of money like me growing up, parents who focused on education, and he separated two conjoined twins from a slip of the lobe and both of them lived. I said, man, Deion Sanders is going to be my athletic hero and Ben Carson will be my academic hero in neurosurgery. So that's how the idea kind of started. And what attracted you to neurosurgery over other specialties? I think seeing somebody who looked like me, that's why my dad put all these sort of black male figures in front of me, because he said, you know, we come from the Bahamas and we want you to see in yourself these outstanding leaders and these great thinkers who have done amazing things, not just with sports, but literally with other aspects of like Nelson Mandela. My dad used to have us read about him all the time and seeing Carson's story and then thinking and reading about the brain and how it's so intricate that you move an inch to the left or an inch to the right or an inch up or an inch down, you're controlling a completely different function of the body and how much of the brain is unknown and that there's a way for me potentially to make an impact in this field. I thought, this is amazing. It seems complex. It seems cool. I mean, my finger is controlled by a thought that I have. I mean, that's phenomenal. So all these things together and then Carson's story being that role model and seeing myself in his story, like you said, really pushed this idea forward for me. Rings are a big deal right now in the NFL. Can you talk to us a little bit about CTE and how it's affecting football players at all levels? Yeah, it's actually incredibly salient because I didn't think about neurosurgery first from a concussion standpoint or a traumatic brain injury. But as I continued to play and as the movie Concussion came out with Will Smith and people started to speak about it a lot more, I said, man, maybe I can do this discipline and this specialty that I love and then still have a foot in football and sports in general and maybe be a consultant or maybe advocacy or develop new helmets and technology that can protect players. So it is true. It is real. Traumatic brain injury is very evident. It's hard to imagine today, but about 100 years ago, boxing was one of the most popular sports in the U.S. More people went to some championship bouts than could fit into any NFL stadium today. But for boxing, it was all downhill from there. There are a lot of reasons why, but one of them is that a lot of people see the sport as barbaric because it causes brain damage. After the most murderous beating a man ever took in the ring, and there's... After years of getting hit in the head, many boxers develop dementia and depression as part of a disease called dementia pugilistica. Nowadays, dementia pugilistica has a new name, CTE. And it's not just found in boxers, but in increasing numbers of football players, even causing some people to question the future of the NFL. Not only in contact sports like what I used to play, but also in cheerleading, throwing up young women or men in the air and they fall, they hit their head, they have these concussions. They tell them to walk it off or you're just seeing stars, it's okay. But we need to really think about the brain and concussions and traumatic brain injury like we think about broken bones or sprained ankles or something like that. They are real issues that matter. It seems sort of nebulous because you're only going off symptoms of what people have to give you, but the effects long-term of the brain rattling on that hard surface on the skull, the microhemorrhages that you may have, the synapses that may be disrupted, all these things can affect your ability to think, sleep, your mood, how that's stable, all these things. So I'm working with a bunch of neurologists. I'm working with social psychologists, working with physicists. It's a multidisciplinary approach to figure out how can we make these games safer. Because frankly, I don't want to take away these sports. Football gave me a lot. It gave me the intangibles that make me a good physician now, at least I hope. Communication, hard work, teamwork, working with other people, overcoming adversity. So I want these games to stay, but I certainly want them to be safer for the younger generation coming up next.
season two of Swing Left's How We Win is here. We have an incredible opportunity to fight for our democracy. We don't agonize, we organize. And we've got a lot of work to do. Subscribe right now on Apple and everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is season two two of How We Win. Win. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Are you worried about the effect football had on your brain? At times, I do worry. Have you had a scan? I have had a scan before, a routine scan, not because of any symptoms or anything like that. And it was clear and clean, thankfully. Haven't expressed any symptoms. But I think right now, my focus has truly been on being the best neurosurgeon I possibly could be and trying to help in this space any way I can, not only through the science, but also through advocacy. I feel like my voice being a former player, maybe the NFL teams or Other organizations may listen a little bit more, say, well, this guy played and now he's studying neurosurgery and neuroscience. Maybe he has a bit of an authoritative voice on this subject. So I would love to use that platform. What do you think of all of the new advancements we've made in mental health with psychedelics? I think that it's very pertinent. I think that we have now expanded and broadened the way we think about mental health, the way we think about psychiatry, psychology, the way we think about the human in general. Mental health used to be something I think was very stigmatized, especially in certain demographics where you really didn't want to talk about it or you brush it aside because it didn't seem like it had a physical or tangible sort of approach. Yeah, you can't see it. Exactly. And so now that people at least embrace the fact that, okay, well, maybe we can't see it, but it's real. It has real life consequences for individuals. How can we use alternative therapies and other modalities to help these individuals achieve their goals in their health, achieve their goals in their life, allow them to return to their communities and be successful and contribute. That's incredibly important. So I appreciate the fact that more minds are occupying this space to target and affect these individuals in a very positive way. I think it's pretty interesting. And as someone who suffers from anxiety, I can tell you that for me, my entire life, my go-to Like my base feeling is a feeling of doom. (laughs) And I'm very optimistic. I always believe that good things will happen. But if there is any sort of situation, I go to fight or flight. And it takes me a very long time to get out of it because I feel like my brain, it's like that is the shortcut to make sure that I'm okay is to put me in a state of panic. And it's been like that my entire life. So the idea that there is treatment or people are experimenting with psychedelics to give your brain other pathways besides the one that you keep 
going to that might be hurtful to yourself, whether it be through depression or anxiety, is really interesting to me and also makes a lot of sense. I agree. For a long time, westernized medicine has been very black and white. It hasn't been studied or written about in the New England Journal of Medicine or some huge publication Then we're just going to stay away from it. We're going to stick to this sort of cookie cutter approach, but that doesn't work. Everyone is different. People have different experiences. People have different reactions to different events. As you mentioned, there's certain individualized issues that need to be individually looked at, examined, explored, and then tried with modalities that may be unconventional, but may work for that individual person. So I think medicine is moving more towards that. I think the generation that I've come from and the medical doctors that are coming through medical school, at least when I was coming through medical school, we were preached that quite often that, look, it's not the old 1960 medicine anymore where you have an issue, lobotomy, or you have an issue, let's just throw you away because you don't matter. It's really trying to focus on the patient and making sure that they are at the center of their management. And then if we could try other modalities, then let's do that because it could be effective. Man, if we can help some veterans who have PTSD come back and feel safe and that they can contribute to society in a productive way, I'm so for it. I'd like to read you a quote. Uh, Quote, football is a man's game. It shouldn't be played until the age of puberty. You said that, and you said it in 1974. How did you know, have a sense about the threshold age to your mind some 40 plus years ago? I played uh, before puberty and got knocked on my ass and got stunned. Okay, what advice would you give as a neurosurgeon and as a professional football player for parents whose kids want to play football knowing what you know now? So the advice that I would give is that football, as I alluded to earlier, is an amazing team sport. I'm biased. I love the sport. My wife knows nothing about football, but I'm trying to get her into it. We've been married for about a year and a half. She's from like Georgia, where football is really, really huge. I was like, man, I tell her dad all the time and her mother is like, man, you didn't put your daughter around some football so she can get into it. But that's just my personal bias. I think football is a great sport because it teaches you these like sort of intangibles. It develops these traits that I think are easily transferable to you being a student, a thinker, a leader, a Christian, whatever it is that you want to be. Working with people who are different than you, working on a team towards one collective goal, taking coaching. There's a generation now that if we get talked to, people sometimes crumble instead of rising to the challenge and saying, you know what? Okay, you want to challenge me? I'm going to meet that challenge head on and I'm going to stand up in the face of adversity and do well. Relying on your fundamentals when pressure comes, being adjustable and flexible. When COVID hit and my neurosurgery stopped and I had to be a COVID doctor, I had to adjust and adapt my practice so that I could help take care of these very sick patients in Boston. So all of that works. And what I would tell parents is think about that when you think about putting your child into football, but also make sure that the fundamentals are being taught and being emphasized, that we're not doing the same old drills that we're doing where you have one player line up here, another player line up here, and they run head first and slam into each other, almost like a macho sort of alpha male drill that really has no benefit to the actual game play. But literally, it's just to say, who's the biggest dog in the bunch? We're moving away from that. We have to make sure the equipment is right. Make sure you have good, proper helmets that fit well. Make sure you're wearing the mouthpieces that are protective. Make sure that you're not playing the sport as a tackle football player until you're in your early teens, maybe 11, 12 years old, maybe a preteen. I would give them this advice going forward because I think the game can be done safely, but it has to be done in a very controlled and managed way. Last year, you advised that it was too early for the NFL to play in the pandemic. And of course, they went ahead and played anyway because 
a lot of money was at stake and they had a lot of infections. Do you think they should be playing this year? I think it's getting better now. Absolutely, Alyssa, you're absolutely right. I was a staunch proponent of not playing last year. College, pro, no, let's worry about this pandemic first. And I think you're sending a message when you're the NFL or the NCAA or the NBA or and you're these major organizations that say, let's focus on health of people who are very vulnerable, who aren't multi-million dollar athletes because they're sitting in their homes or sitting in their communities in rural or suburban America and are struggling with these issues. And you could honestly have taken those funds that you had accumulated for your sport to put your sport on to put into the communities to help with vaccine rollouts now that are happening or to help with other health issues that could help the public health fight and push here. I do believe it was a mistake last year. Now it's getting a little bit better. Our numbers are getting better. I'm looking at our hospital, Mass General. We don't have as many patients in Boston with COVID, so we're moving more in a normal setting. So I think it's reasonable to return now with certain restrictions and limitations, whether that be the amount of people who can come, whether that be an isolated pseudo bubble, whether that means getting players vaccinated so they don't become spreaders in these events. I think you could do it now in a more intelligent way. Last year was certainly the wrong move. The NFL continues its effort to get all of its players vaccinated against COVID-19. On Thursday, the league sent a memo to teams outlining the different rules and procedures that will pertain to vaccinated and unvaccinated players this season. Basically, if you're unvaccinated, you'll be under the same restrictions as last year. And if you're vaccinated, you'll have more freedoms. No masks, no daily testing, et cetera, et cetera. One of the key points from Thursday's memo was about the rescheduling of games for COVID-related reasons. The league is determined to play all of its games as scheduled. And this year, a forfeit will be called if all of the following occur. A game is postponed by government authorities, medical experts, or the commissioner because of an outbreak, and the league cannot reschedule the game. And they determined that the original postponement was caused by an outbreak among unvaccinated players of one team. I wonder if there would have been as much mask hesitancy had a league like the NFL come out and said, you know what, it's just too dangerous. So we're going to keep our players safe. And we suggest that all of you at home wear your mask, socially distant. But as it was, it almost seemed like business as usual for so much of the country. And I think that that fed into how people were not taking it seriously enough. You're absolutely right. I mean, I remember as a young person watching Michael Jordan's commercials like Mike drinking Gatorade. I want to drink my Gatorade like Michael Jordan did or watching Deion Sanders run down field and then stop and then do a little highlight primetime dance. And I was doing that at recess the next day because everything that they say they do in the NFL, they have a huge voice. They own a day of the week that they can move swabs of people who may not listen to Dr. Fauci or may not listen to the CDC. They may not have CNN on all the time, but they do have SportsCenter on. They do have ESPN on and they follow this group. So, yeah, there's an opportunity that was lost by these big organizations not taking advantage of the moment for sure. Totally agree. Okay, now let's talk about your CARICOM initiative. This is so exciting. First, explain to my listeners what CARICOM means. So CARICOM stands for Caribbean Community. It's an organization in the Caribbean that has about 15 member states that all come together, use their political unity to speak on development, trade, cybersecurity, foreign exchange, all of these things. It's a way for these smaller island nations to communicate and touch base with each other often. They have a secretary general and they have all the prime ministers that sort of head up different factions of CARICOM. And so it's a great thing. When I was younger, as I mentioned, maybe alluded to earlier, I'm from the Bahamas and they used to have these CARICOM games where we used to go and 
run track meets against other islands around the region. So it's a lot of fun. And it's a great organization that, again, has an existing communication lattice between these island nations. It's so incredible. So in the Caribbean, what kind of access do people have to medical care and how is that different than what we have in the United States? I would say it is, Alyssa. My initiative is called the CARICOM Neurosurgical Initiative, obviously because I'm a neurosurgeon, but just speaking generally about the access to medical care, it's hard because of geography. We have people who are on certain remote islands that can't take a boat or a plane or a med evacuation helicopter to get to a main hospital that has the capacity to take care of you, or you may not be able to afford it when you get there, or there may not be a physician that's qualified to take care of you when you are there. So there's economic challenges, there's geographic challenges, there's time challenges, there's all these different issues that happen in the Caribbean. The reason why we don't hear about it quite often, frankly, is because our main revenue generator is tourism. And so we lead with how beautiful our islands are and how great they look and how it's paradise. Please, Americans, UK, Brits, come and give us your money and spend it on Atlantis and all these things. But when you lift up the veil, you realize that there are a lot of people like my aunt, for instance, who waited seven to eight hours to be seen by a neurosurgeon after being hit in the head by a car, laying in the street, couldn't get a CT scan, couldn't get an MRI, no nurses there to take care of her. And it was just a very difficult situation. She ended up dying in the clinic before being seen by anybody. And her story is not unique to other members of the Caribbean. So the CARICOM Neurosurgical Initiative, this project that I'm doing, is one to try to build the capacity of neurosurgery, increase the equitable access of care for those very vulnerable patients in the Caribbean, and allow for the community that already talks on other issues to now talk on health, talk on neurosurgery, talk on these issues that can allow the countries to be healthier, safer, and make a progress towards a better tomorrow. Coming from the Caribbean, we know that our health system is scary. As I talk to my parents, my aunts, my family, my friends, many of them are afraid to grow old in the Caribbean because they do not know where they will go for health care. Quality care costs too much money. What are our governments doing to improve our health system? And what is our role in ensuring that we have the best care possible for our future? Help proud are your parents of you? I'm sitting here and I didn't even give birth to you and I'm proud. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I have no stretch marks from you and I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, wow, this is just the most incredible human. Oh man, I'm very humble. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. My parents, they are amazing. My mother and father have been married 50 years. I'm the baby of five boys. So I feel like I got a lot of the knowledge. Oh, God and, bless and your mother. That. Oh yeah. <laughs> she kept trying five for a girl. Boys. Oh. Yeah. How did she get y'all to your sports? I mean, I'm oh. dealing with one son and I was a doubleheader in baseball yesterday. Today I'm taking him for hockey. I can't even imagine. She's a queen, truly. So explain to my listeners exactly what you're trying to achieve with CARICOM and how you're working to do that. Absolutely. So the CARICOM Neurosurgical Initiative is really broken up into three different parts. The first part is public policy. So how do we petition the governments of these island nations 
to think about traumatic brain injury and neurosurgical disease more upstream, getting women to have mandated folate supplementation so they don't have spina bifida, right? In a lot of countries, it's not a mandated thing. So how do we get this into the law? How do we get helmet wearing to be mandated and laws be more strict so that when you ride your scooter, ride your moped, ride your bike in these island nations and you get hit, the helmet can help save your life. The Caribbean's geography is one of the biggest hurdles when it comes to patients getting trauma-related care. The distance between the islands and lack of centralization makes it impossible to treat all of the trauma-related cases within the recommended four-hour window. This is not mandated in a lot of places, so getting these into law, into books, doing public service announcements about traumatic brain injury and how do we prevent concussions and a return to play sort of thing. So public policy is one arm. The second arm is clinical. So giving the neurosurgeons down there the ability to operate with better volume and even operate on more complex cases. So we're going to have donations of medical equipment down to the Caribbean so that these providers can do more work. We're going to have visiting professorships. So if one neurosurgeon in St. Lucia has perfected a certain technique, he can go to Haiti for a week or two weeks, teach that technique to the Haitian neurosurgeons. And so now Haiti's got that technique as well as St. Lucia. And then we continue to have expanded coverage around the Caribbean as we share best practices and share resources. The third arm is research and education. If you look at how research is being published in the Caribbean as far as neurosurgery is concerned, it's a lot of American or Brits who come down for a week, drop in, do some research, publish it, and leave. It's not organically made from the neurosurgeons and the medical students in the Caribbean. So the idea is to create organic research right from there. So we know what's going on. Not only we can inform policy, but it also can influence the patient management as well. And so we have a GoFundMe account right now. We have this campaign going. We're trying to raise $200,000, honestly. I have it on my website, CaribbeanNF.org. I have it all over my social media. I've been blasting it out. So we're trying to get to these points where we can fund some of this stuff. The prime ministers all are in favor of it. My hospital, Mass General, is supporting us. They've given us 50000 to start this off, but we certainly have a long way to go. And so it's kind of what we're doing. I'm super excited about it. I'm passionate about it. been thinking about it for a long time, and now... As an older neurosurgeon, I feel like I'm in a space that I can hope to make change in this part of the world that means so much to me and my family. And this next question, it should be an obvious answer, but we've sadly learned again during this pandemic that it isn't. Tell my listeners why Americans should care about what happens in the Caribbean or anywhere else in the world, for that matter, when it comes to healthcare specifically. Great question. I think Americans should care about what happens in the Caribbean because it's our own backyard. And there are a lot of Caribbean influence in America within popular culture, within media, within sports and all around. You even have our vice president who's from the Caribbean, right? So it's had our influences all over our community and our society in America. But frankly, it's just people next door to us that are struggling and hurting, just like we're struggling and hurting here. We've learned through this pandemic, as you mentioned, that we are a more global community. We're all connected. We're citizens of the world that something happens in India where you have all these people dying from the pandemic. You feel that. You even feel that here in America, right? And so you have it happening in Haiti. You have it happening in Grenada, Guyana, right next door, if you vacation to these spots, or if you just know someone from these spots, or if you just look literally on the map and say, this is so close to us, we don't have to potentially travel across the world to be someone who wants to give or wants to support an issue that matters. We can do it right here locally in our own backyard. And so that's the push that we've been fighting for. And I've talked to a lot of my American friends who believe in this mission, believe in this project, believe in this vision, and it certainly matters. And the pandemic, if it hasn't taught us anything, like I mentioned, it's taught us that we're all interconnected. 
whether we like it or not. Nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe. And I think that's really important to stress. Myron, do you think that the people in our country, in the United States, who goes to the Caribbean on vacation, who has no real understanding of their healthcare system, what obligation do you feel that we have to contribute to what's going on in the Caribbean? I think there is a profound obligation, morally, ethically. I think it's a responsibility, honestly. If you go down to the Caribbean and you contribute to the tourist industry or any sort of industry, you enjoy yourself, you're able to relax, you're able to decompress. That's fantastic. It's a part of the world that permits that with beaches and sun and sand and activities that can get you and have you have an escape from your day-to-day life in America. But at the same time, these people who are serving you and these people who are trying to create that atmosphere for you are suffering. They really are. And there's a few small minority that do have the funds and the economic means to receive equitable, timely access to care, but there are a lot that do not. And those who are serving you your kunk salad on the beach or those who are serving you your Vitamalt or your Junkanoo or taking you from one part of the island to another on a resort and taking you to swim at pigs in the Bahamas as we do, if they get injured, if they get hurt, their issues are very vast and they're very deep and they may not have the same opportunities that you do. So I do believe that if you're going to take from a region, take sounds very harsh, but if you're going to experience it and enjoy it, then there could be on the back end an opportunity for you to say, well, here's my other contribution to the community. And the CARICOM Neurosurgical Initiative is one way that I can help these individuals who have this equitable access problem through geography, economics, through workforce being poor or underfunded, understaffed, under-resourced. Here's my chance of contributing and doing something more than just enjoying the sun, sand, and beaches. So that is a huge pledge. I implore Americans to think about it on that kind of level, because I feel if we do that, if we join arm in arm with this amazing country that we have to help this region that has tried to help America so much and has been there for America for a lot of instances, especially for vacationing, I think we can have a great team and do some wonderful things in the region. I really do. Tell everyone again, slowly, the website, and we will post all of this. Give people your Twitter account handle and your website address so that people can support your work and also the GoFundMe. Thank you. So my Twitter account is Myron Roll, M-Y-R-O-N-R-O-L-L-E, just my name. My Instagram is Myron L. Roll. Same thing, just using my middle initial there. My website, where you can find the GoFundMe link, is CaribbeanNF.org. CaribbeanNF.org, meaning Caribbean Neurosurgery Foundation, CaribbeanNF.org. You can find the GoFundMe there. We have this really cool about seven minute mini documentary that we have on there. I would love for your listeners to see the video and get inspired and you can donate right there. We're super excited about it. It's very thrilling to be on this end of trying to hopefully save lives. And again, a part of the world that matters to me and so many people as well. Who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? Oh, man. Hard for me to bet against the 45-year-old Tom Brady, man. He just does it all the time. So maybe he'll win it. Boston fans are very (laughs) upset that he left New England, but he's so good. I don't know. (laughs) He's so good. It's crazy. And my final question that I ask all of my guests is what gives you hope? What gives me hope is seeing young people. I'm so inspired by young people. Seeing them respond to challenges that we once thought were just isolated for those who had five degrees, went to an Ivy League school, were in politics, have some semblance of power. But seeing someone like Amanda Gorman stand up on stage and give an outstanding poem at the inauguration, seeing these young activists speak about 
LGBTQ rights, speak about Black Lives Matter, speak about stopping the Asian hate crimes, really getting out and using their voice in these platforms. It's a bold group that just inspires me every single day. And it honestly makes me want to continue to do the work that I'm doing as a neurosurgeon where I can affect change in my sort of niche area and say, okay, I can maybe save your life. But then I can also show you that you can be a neurosurgeon, like how Ben Carson made me believe that I could be a neurosurgeon. Uh, I don't speak on his politics necessarily, but I speak on the fact that he was a phenomenal medical doctor, gave me a sort of viewpoint where I can see myself. And that's sort of where I am. So I think what gives me hope is the next generation coming through. You see these outstanding stories. They are fired up. They are excited. They're well-equipped to do great work. And if I or my team or you, even Alyssa, your work that you do, the fantastic leadership that you do and the voice that you have, if that can any way contribute to how these young people continue to move forward, I think when we leave the table and it's time for them to sit at the table and be the decision makers, I think we're going to be in good hands. Myron, you give me hope. So thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. You're incredible. Being a football player, playing at Florida State University, Playing in the NFL, that gave me a platform and a certain level of credibility to walk into a room with young kids and say, hey, you know, you can be great. You can be a leader. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter where you start. It just matters that you have the focus to drive and you use the resources around you to help get there. They might be hearing the same message from their teachers, but when they hear it from a guy who played football, a guy who's now a medical student, a guy who won a Rhodes Scholarship, then I may get into their hearts. And if I can use that and make that kind of difference, you know, it's, it's, it's a truly great thing. And um, thankfully, my, my family and I and the foundation has been able to move some kids into a better direction. And we've seen them grow and mature and have success. I started my foundation in college after seeing a story on TV about a safety at Florida State named Myron Roll. Myron had started his own charitable foundation while still attending school. I'd never even thought about that as a possibility. I just assumed you had to be a millionaire to have a charity. I didn't know any better. I've never met Myron, I've never spoken to Myron, and I'm sure he doesn't know that he's the reason I started my foundation. But Myron showed me what's possible, and he helped to inspire me. And because of that, and because of my mom and our incredible volunteers of my foundation, there are now thousands of kids getting an opportunity to play sports after school that otherwise may not have. If you ever needed an illustration of privilege, it's the access to care that wealthy nations have when compared to poor nations. What we do with that privilege matters. We've seen it with the COVID vaccine. Just a handful of nations hoarded the overwhelming majority of the world's doses. And now poorer countries are suffering and dying from the pandemic while things get better here. But it's not just vaccines. Our access to doctors, hospitals, trauma centers, and medications is something that should not be based in wealth. And if we, as a nation, choose profits over people, we can never be true leaders in the world. Our wealth must go hand in hand with our generosity. It's not just an issue of human rights, although that should be enough. No, it's also an issue of national security. Who knows when or where the next pandemic will crop up? Nobody knows. But what we do know is that when the entire world is not sufficiently equipped to fight it, it endangers all of us. When we don't take care of each other, we all suffer. You can't be America first if you put everyone else last. And that just makes us all losers. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.